This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to Outward. I'm Daniel Lavery. You may know me as the host of another podcast at Slate, Big Mood, Little Mood, and I'm hosting Outward today. I'll be talking today with Kira Deschler about a particular phenomenon. You've heard of Taylor Swift. You may have heard of Swifties, which is the sort of cute nickname for people who consider themselves super fans. In addition to that, there are particular Swifties who are sometimes referred to as gaylers. Because they themselves are not only gay, they wonder if, they speculate about, they imagine that Taylor Swift herself might be gay too. We will not be coming to anything like a final judgment today. We're not here to uh, try to definitively prove any one person's sexuality one way or the other. I think it's an interesting phenomenon that has real roots in a general history of rock and roll fandom uh, and of queer discourse and etiquette when it comes to public figures in the closet that really interests me. But no one here is being accused of doing anything deeply wrong on any side. Uh, so this is simply an exercise in thinking about thinking. Before we start our conversation about Taylor Swift, I want to tell a story about Nachman of Breslov. He was a great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov and the founder of the Breslov Hasidic movement in the late 18th century. His Kabbalistic parables were especially well-known, and there was a posthumous translation of his writing by Martin Buber that influenced, among other writers of the 20th century, Franz Kafka. Nachman also wrote and destroyed several books on mysticism. One of his published stories is called The Loss of the Princess. Once there was a king... The king had six sons and one daughter. The daughter was extremely important to him, and he cherished her. Once, on a certain day when he was with her, he became enraged at her, and from his mouth slipped the sentence, May the not good take you away. That night she went to her room, and in the morning no one knew where she was. Her father, the king, grieved deeply, and he sent here and there searching for her. So the king's viceroy takes a servant, a horse, and some money for expenses to go searching for her. The search ends up taking a very long time. Eventually, the viceroy comes to a castle. He walks inside without being stopped by any of the guards until he finds a king feasting with his courtiers and musicians surrounded by even more armed guards. Eventually, the queen enters the room to great fanfare, and the viceroy recognizes her as the lost princess. She recognizes him too, although she doesn't say anything in front of everybody else. Later, she comes over to where he's sitting in the corner and says, Do you recognize me? He says yes, and asks how she came to be there. She tells him, Because of that sentence that slipped from my father's mouth, and this place is the not good. The viceroy asks what he has to do to free her, and she says that he has to find some place that he's able to stay for a whole year. And during this entire year, she says, you must yearn for me to free me from here. You will constantly yearn and search and hope to free me, and you will fast. On the last day of the year, you shall fast and not sleep from sunset to sunset. 
Of course, complications ensue. The Viceroy has to start this process over several times, often succumbing to hunger on the very last day of each year, and then falling into an enchanted sleep, sometimes for decades at a time. It's a great pity both for him and for me, the princess says when she finds him sleeping, because I have been here such a long time and cannot get out. He has to travel to increasingly distant lands. He has to find special trees, deal with giants, locate a golden mountain, talk to the keeper of the winds, and more, all in hopes of retrieving the princess, who seems to become more irretrievably lost with each fresh attempt to rescue her. The last two sentences of the story, spoiler alert, are, and how he freed her, Revnaman did not tell. And finally, he did free her. There's a certain subset of the Taylor Swift fandom that relates to the idea of a possibly gay Taylor Swift, a little bit like the lost princess of this story. Outwardly powerful, beautiful, rich, respected, with everything she possibly needs to command. Inwardly trapped, secretive, hidden, unable to speak, someone who can only be rescued by one with secret and esoteric knowledge and the ability to read signs where others see nothing. And it is this group of people that we are going to be spending a little bit of time with today and thinking about what it means when somebody else is at their gayest inside your own head. We're going to get into all of this and more with my guest today, Kira Deschler, after a quick break. Our secret moments in your garden room they got no idea about me and you There is an indentation in the shape of you Major mark on me, a golden tattoo All of this silence and patience pining in anticipation My hands are shaking from holding back from you All of this silence and patience pining and desperately waiting My hands are shaking from all this Hey everyone, just a heads up before we get into this episode, you should know that Kira was calling into the show from Austin, and as a result, it sometimes sounds like a phone call. Sometimes it sounds like a phone call with a little bit of crackling around the edges. Either that or someone very powerful and important is trying to stop us from talking about the possibility that we can make Taylor Swift gay through the power of our imaginations. You do the research, you decide for yourself. With me in the studio today is Kira Deschler, a freelance writer, editor, and self-appointed lesbian pop culture expert. She writes a newsletter called Paging Dr. Lesbian that focuses on all aspects of lesbian media and culture. Kira also works for The Daily Dot as an assistant newsletter editor. She has a master's in media studies from UT Austin and wrote her thesis on lesbian and sapphic fandom. She currently lives in Austin, Texas, but is originally from Seattle. Kira, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here and for truly lending your considerable expertise. I could not think of someone more qualified to speak on this subject than you. Um, so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind for some of our listeners who are maybe familiar with the concept of Taylor Swift and of lesbianism, but maybe not so much what might be going on at present, might not necessarily be familiar with the portmanteau gaylers, if you could just kind of give them a rundown of what's been going on. Gaylor fandom started maybe around 2012 or so in the mid 2010s. The main fandom topic around that time was the purported relationship between Taylor Swift and Carly Kloss, 
who at that time was her best friend. Um, she's a model. She's currently married to a Kushner. But a lot of fans at that time were convinced that Taylor and Carly were secretly dating. There's, you know, a ton of evidence supposedly that points to that fact. There's long, long Google Docs. There's PowerPoint presentations. There's a lot of fan-made content that suggests that that's true. Um, but there's other, there's other ideas about Gaylor too. There's more broad notions that a lot of her lyrics are gay in some way. Fans at least interpret them in that way. There's other relationships series like her and Diana Agron, that's a big one. Swift Cron is the portmanteau of that supposed relationship. So a gayler basically is a fan of Taylor Swift that either believes she's secretly gay, bi, queer, or in some cases just interprets her lyrics in a queer way. People have different, you know, opinions about what that means to them personally. There's actually a good amount of variety within that fandom. But then there's also kind of controversy within the fandom People who don't believe in Gaylor kind of are hating on the Gaylers and saying they're ruining the fandom. They're not real fans. They're, there's a lot of inner conflict within the broader Swifty community, I would say. Yeah. So when you describe that to me, when I hear the sort of portmanteaus, PowerPoints uh, and, and, and sense of evidence, it sounds somewhat tongue in cheek. Uh, or, or like that sort of straddling the line between this is important to me, but I don't take it too seriously. Would you say that that's a fair characterization of the majority of the community? Obviously, everyone doesn't speak for everyone else. But what would be your assessment of sort of how serious does this uh, affect people in terms of saying, I have evidence that this celebrity might be gay? Um, is that tongue in cheek a little tongue in cheek quite a lot? I would say that there are definitely some people who like very much believe this to be true, or at least very much want this to be true. Like they have, you know, they discuss it a lot and they post their things. And there are some people that are, it's a little bit more tongue in cheek or playful. Um, it kind of depends on like on, on Reddit, you'll see a lot of stuff. Um, the Gaylor Swift Reddit, there's a lot of conversations about various, evidence for this being true or debates about things she said or things other people have said about her um, that are serious. And then there's some people who, you know, reference it playfully and don't take it as seriously. And there's, you know, debates among those two groups, I would say. People saying, hey, you're taking it too seriously. Other people saying, hey, I think this is true. Like, stop hating on me. So there's, there is some variety, I would say, in terms of how seriously people are taking this. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. And then the reason, of course, that so much of this has been uh, sort of at the forefront of some cultural news lately is because uh, there has seemingly or potentially been some sort of comment from Taylor Swift that could be interpreted as a sort of maybe corrective, maybe repudiation of this sort of concept. And I'm wondering if you know a little bit more about I know it's it's got something to do with leaked version of her new liner notes for a re-release of the 1989 album. Uh, and I'm just curious, is this like, is I, is I find myself now getting into the sort of spycraft uh, era of it. Like, is it confirmed? Do we have semaphore? Do we know that it's her? Is it a false flag operation? Which is kind of a fun feeling. Yeah, so supposedly it's yeah, the leaked prologue for 1989. And she often has these almost essays for all of her albums. She'll have, you know, something she supposedly has sitting down and written for the fans within the physical CD itself. Um, people seem to be taking it as the truth. Um, there's, you know, not any evidence of it being fake as far as I know at this point. 
Um, so it's basically been taken as gospel, um, but it created, you know, a lot of tension and debate within the community when it was first released um, because of the people thinking it's specifically referencing Gaylor. And for anyone who might not be familiar, the quote is as follows. I swore off dating and decided to focus only on myself, my music, my growth, and my female friendships, Swift purportedly wrote, referring to this period of her career, which I believe is around 2014. If I only hung out with my female friends, people couldn't sensationalize or sexualize that, right? I would learn later on that people could and people would. I find that last little bit really charmingly put together. It's <laughs> yeah. it's very dramatic in a way that, you know, I think she she operates really well in, in registers of indignation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and obviously, depending on your sort of interest in her persona or her status as a billionaire, you may or may not find that indignation uh, plausible. But I, I think she she works in interesting ways with indignation and she finds new ways to be indignant that really interest me. Um, and, and I can see looking at this, you know, who are people and what does sensationalized mean in this context? You could certainly read this as don't imagine me in the wrong ways, strangers on the Internet or this is just about sort of like reporters and people who work in the pop culture industry. Uh, it could be, I think, uh, shunted in a lot of different directions. And maybe that's part of why it felt like such a big possible moment is it's both clear and yet it's not targeted. It's not X and Y type of people saying X and Y type of things. It's just people are sensationalizing my relationships with women. Um And then there's a sort of open question of how much do Gaylers think this might be about them? Yeah, that's what I think is very interesting about the statement is that it's people are taking it as a reference to the Gaylers, but it's not quite specific enough for us to know that that's exactly what she's meaning by that. And also the interesting part is like she or her famous PR person, Tree Payne, who is very well known among the Swifties, like she's an iconic figure who's rarely seen, but always around. She or Swift have basically never referenced or discussed the Gaylers in a specific way. So if this is a reference to the Gaylers, it's like really the first time that anyone on her team has discussed the theories. There's an article written about them. There was a this study that was done looking at Taylor Swift fandom online, and they looked at a bunch of Taylor Swift accounts, and they found that 9% of them were quote-unquote Gaylor accounts, which is like a pretty small percentage of the in, entire Taylor Swift community, but there's kind of an outsized effect that these fans have because it's so kind of controversial and there's just so many different thoughts about it. So I think it's interesting if this is, in fact, a comment on that or not. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think certainly it is both possible that people can speculate about a public figure's sexuality in ways that can pretty quickly get intrusive and ugly. And it's also often true that people treat the mere possibility of gayness as itself inappropriate, um, inappropriately sexualizing, and in some ways a veiled insult in a way that I think can be itself homophobic. So it, it is sort of like a perfect storm for trying to figure out which elements are uh, of that are coming to play um, from which sides. And none of that, I think, presupposes necessarily any sort of like vested homophobia on Taylor Swift's part. So I do want to make it really clear. Uh, I, I don't have like a staked out position on that front, but it does, I think, bring up those questions like – is saying something like, if I focus on my female friendships that couldn't or shouldn't be sexualized, you know, is that itself 
uh, implying that anyone who did think there was a possibility for sexuality between two women doing something sensational, you know, again, I don't I don't mean to say like, therefore, it's secretly homophobic, but I do think that's an interesting um, state of mind. Like if I just hang out with my girls, that's chaste. That's um, something that ought to be left alone. That's something that ought not to be speculated about. Uh, and I think it's also really interesting, of course, that this is coming up in the context of Taylor Swift is re-recording her first six albums uh, because she wants to have the masters to her own music. She wants to have the rights to her own music, which many musicians don't get to have and which otherwise would belong to Scooter Braun. So it's it's all happening within the context of uh, you know, an artist trying to make sure that she gets the the credit and the money for her own work. Uh, and so I think that would potentially also bleed into um, thinking about the ways that people think about me as a, as a persona. I now also want to take the opportunity to sort of restake my claim uh, to tell the story about myself, which seems to me pretty understandable as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's always been a very aware of like building her own narrative I think that's always been which is kind of interesting again because her her music and her lyrics are are so diaristic and so personal and that's kind of the appeal of her as a singer as an artist is that it's like she's giving talking about herself she's talking about these very intimate things and yet it's also clear that she is crafting this narrative about herself and somehow those two things don't contradict exactly at least for fans they see that as kind of natural and they're not they're not mad about the fact that she is constructing this narrative because they still feel really connected to her through her music which I think also goes back to the focus on her relationships which is again another complex dynamic because her lyrics are so personal people are reading into her lyrics trying to figure out who the songs are about which she also encourages through her whole focus on easter eggs and leaving hints for fans so people do focus on those things and then they potentially depending on your opinion, you know, take it too far, or do this or do this. So it's, it's kind of complicated, like how much is she wanting people to, you know, dissect her art versus her life? And is there an overlap between art and life in this situation? Like, how do we draw the line between those two things? I think it's really interesting and complicated in terms of how she's constructing herself as this omnipresent figure, yet someone who is relatable and someone you could like, you could know through her lyrics. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, both that uh, wanting to build a public persona that, you know, traffics in part in construct intimacy or perceptions of if I share part of my journal here, then you're understanding me as a potential friend. That makes a lot of sense in terms of uh, building a persona that people are invested in. And that does not mean, therefore, that it would be okay or appropriate for anyone who likes your music to behave intrusively uh, or for people to, um, you know, behave inappropriately or like transgress boundaries. But then it, you know, with that caveat in place, it is also difficult to control exactly how or when or dictate how or when or in what ways people think about you. Um, Especially, I think, you know, just I go back again to the sort of the text here, which is just, um, if I only hung out with my female friends, people couldn't sexualize that, right? Is such an interesting construction to me because it feels like, well, you're a billionaire. You're a very savvy person. I'm sure you've heard of lesbianism. I actually don't think it's very weird that sometimes some people, particularly lesbians, might sometimes see two women together and think possibly they're dating. And that that itself is not the same thing as behaving intrusively, although it could possibly be 
used to justify later intrusive behavior. I suppose what I'm trying to do is split the difference between um, invading someone's privacy versus idly wondering to yourself online. It would be kind of nice if this musician I liked were gay. That would be fun. I'm gay. I'd like that. Yeah, I think it's also interesting there because it's, again, not totally clear she's talking about fans because she just says people. And obviously a lot of the media narrative around her during that time was the quote-unquote squad. She says in this in this prologue that she did make an effort to hang out with female friends more than male partners, supposedly. But then the result of that was the media narrative of the squad and it being like this girl group, like exclusive club that perhaps was not exactly her intention. And she didn't like that narrative that came from her um, choice to center her friends more than her romantic partners. So that's also another complicated thing that wasn't, that doesn't really have to do with the Gaylers in the same way as people are taking this prologue piece. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to, again, without asking you to speak on behalf of the entire Gayler community, which I realize is, is probably quite varied, but do you think that there's a sort of consensus on whether we think Taylor Swift is lesbian or bisexual or queer and, um, wants to come out but feels that she can't and therefore purposely includes Easter eggs for those of us in the know to follow so she can sort of like wink at us from the closet? Or is it more of a sense of we think she's, you know, some sort of queer and maybe doesn't even realize the degree to which she is giving out this information? Like, do they think of it as more these are like SOS distress signals being sent from someone on the other side of a door, or this is just, we're picking up what she's putting down almost by accident. I think there are definitely a, a good number of people who think that she is like doing this on purpose. Like she's leaving Easter eggs for people and that she is, you know, plotting to come out at some point. There's one theory that people think that Christian Siriano made her like a rainbow dress when she performed at, Stonewall, I think, but then she decided not to wear it. And then it, the same dress was worn by Billy Porter at a later date. Apparently, Christian Siriano, like, maybe hinted that this was true, although there's not like 100% clear evidence again. So people think maybe, oh, she was going to come out and then she decided not to come out. There's like, or people think, hey, this Travis Kelsey thing, maybe that's going to be a PR thing now. And then later down the line, it's going to lead to her coming out. Then again, there's people who are less invested in the conspiracy part of it and more invested in the lyricism, which is, you know, hey, this lyric theme, really gay, really lesbian, whatever. And regardless of whether or not she meant it that way, like it's read like that in many instances. Um, that's less about her coming out and more about, you know, interpretive practices of listening to music. We found that if you gave listeners an opportunity to take a break at this point in the episode, that people would and people did. And now back to my conversation with Kira Deschler about the Gaylor phenomenon. It's very difficult because making any kind of a public statement, even an oblique one um, about not being gay, uh, is, is sometimes itself sort of self-defeating in no small part because a lot of times people who make public statements saying they're not gay are people who later come out, but also people who never come out and also people who may never have been gay to begin with. And I think of it's sort of interesting how in you know, earlier parts of the 20th century, um, celebrities who were closeted would, would I think, be less likely to do anything like breadcrumbing 
and um, uh, would be much more likely to, in fact, studiously avoid being around gay people or or being seen at places that were known to be gay hangouts. Whereas uh, getting more into the 70s, 80s and 90s, you did start to see a little bit more of, um, you know, sometimes with like Katie Lang or Melissa Etheridge, there would be a nod to lesbianism before mm-hmm. they formally came out later, as well as Ellen DeGeneres. Um, and so there was sometimes with some people more of a practice of hinting or glass closeting. And, and again, none of this is to say, therefore, everybody who has ever been at a pride parade is planning on coming out later. Just that the relationship to public closetedness sort of shifted at some point, um, such that now, uh, sometimes people will sort of speculate, is someone planning to come out later? And this might be a run up to coming out as if uh, people are like test driving it or doing a dry run. Um, and I think that's just something a little bit new for a lot of public figures. And I don't know that there's necessarily the same series of etiquette uh, or or rules that might have governed, uh, you know, public discourse uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And that's uh, presumably difficult to navigate. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you think about how the idea of coming out has changed. Like you said, I think people think of like the Indigo Girls, Melissa Etheridge, just like iconic lesbian figures, but they also weren't out at the beginning of their careers, which is maybe hard for us to fathom because they're so connected to that community. And that's kind of what people think of immediately when they think of them. That's another interesting aspect of them. And then you think of people like everyone knows, but they never talk about it. Like I think a great example is Jodie Foster. She had a full like wife and kids for many years before the only explicitly, if you can call that came out, I think it was the 2013 Golden Globe when she like joked about it and then basically came out. And that's again, she had two children with her ex-wife. And that's another interesting example of kind of trying to navigate that public private thing but everyone knowing but no one's saying and it's, i imagine it's an uncomfortable position for someone in the in the public eye like that yeah hugely so and i think too you know there's a sort of interesting history of like plausibly deniable lesbianism and rock music history that is distinct from a, a sort of different strain of like um gay diva worship uh, that maybe is cousins with gay diva worship, but they're not siblings. Um, and, and I think like there's the, the Lita Ford had that quote about quitting the runaways, which was Joan Jett's first band back in 1979, where she said, well, first I found out that Sandy, the one I had bonded with the most was a lesbian. Then I found out that Cherie was messing around with Joan. I was so freaked out that I quit the band. When I found out that the girls were all gay, I wasn't sure how to take it. I didn't know what it was. And, um, you know, I think similarly, there's that bit in that line of, I found out that Sandy, who I had bonded with the most, was a lesbian. And again, I don't mean to like directly compare these two statements or or to say that, you know, I don't want to like castigate anyone for gay panic. But I do think there is that tension um, between, you know, purportedly straight women uh, that I certainly remember from my own junior high school days of there's a certain type of intense intimacy and closeness that women will encourage with one another, but that can also go along with um, homophobia and that can kind of then be immediately turned around and used to discipline anybody who invokes lesbianism. Again, I think of like that line from Mean Girls, you know, I couldn't invite her to my pool party. She was mm-hmm. a lesbian where all of a sudden the sort of like intimacy and trust um, that is often like part and parcel of the of building certain types of, of female friendships that then immediately become sort of evidence of, oh, I bonded with her the most and she was a lesbian as if that somehow meant it was 
no longer a good thing or it made it suspect. Um, and again, none of that's to say these individual people are bad or homophobic, just that uh, the specter of lesbianism can sometimes make the goodness of female friendships become fraught. I think another thing that's interesting about lesbian music of like the 70s, 80s and 90s is there was more of like a, a physical community connection around that in terms of like women's music festivals and just lesbian bars and that type of thing. Like they were, you know, claimed by this community and then there was an actual space to go to celebrate that music and celebrate one another that doesn't really exist in the same way today. And I think that's, I think a lot of younger queer people feel that kind of disconnection because community gets is not as literally close and tight knit as it once was, but you can just kind of still get, you know, brief moments of that, like at a Haley Kiyoko concert or a Fletcher concert, or that type of thing. But I think it's interesting to think about how fans' connection to quote unquote lesbian music has changed over the years in that regard. As yeah, well. it, it's interesting to me too, because I think one of the things that I have heard a little bit about this and that I think might be a, a, a sort of question for people would be, if if there's this much tension uh, or potential tension between a fan and the the celebrity that they're sort of invested in uh, about even just like ideas about what's appropriate to discuss or or what are potential relationships that are uh, legitimate to consider and and which ones aren't, uh, why not you know transfer your interests or your affections to another out celebrity? And it always makes me think a little bit of do you remember in the early two thousands when Jessica Seinfeld had that book about sneaking vegetables into like kids food? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was, it was like kind of. I mean, I, I I imagine you're familiar with the concept of just like if your kids don't like broccoli, sneak it into their macaroni and cheese by like blending it, um, and it can sometimes feel a little bit like I I, w- I imagine that what somebody might get out of you know closely reading all of these snippets from like one of the most famous and wealthy women in the world and speculating about whether or not she might have dated another incredibly famous and like popular woman is not like. It's a little bit like saying, wouldn't you rather eat a big bowl of broccoli? Like, you're not going to get the same thing out of, like, a mid-level out rocker who might be great and have, you know, music that interests you. But it's pretty clearly not the same thing. And I do think it's sort of interesting, um, the idea of uh, substituting one celebrity for another uh, when they're clearly just doing very different things. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think I've, I saw some – and I was looking through Reddit – a while ago, I saw some posts about it, like someone feeling disappointed about the supposed Gaylor call out was like, you know, I just I just wanted to believe that like the biggest pop star in the world, like had the same feelings as me, like that was compelling idea to me. And it's that I think that that shouldn't be overlooked. Like there obviously are. Luckily, we have some, you know, lesbian musicians now who are, you know, more famous, you know, King Princess, Luna, Haley Kiyoko, that sort of thing. But the difference between those artists and Taylor Swift is like enormous, like insurmountable. Like it would, it's a huge, huge difference. Like thinking about the most, one of like maybe the most famous people in the entire world, regardless of industry, being queer is like incomprehensible, honestly. Yeah. So I, I really understand why any sort of just swap out this sort of, uh, unique celebrity for someone else who is not really like her uh, and have at it uh, is sort of uh, thin gruel. So I guess I'm really just curious, you know, given that I don't think this sounds necessarily definitive, but could certainly potentially be experienced as as something akin to a rejection, um, 
what do you think would be like a useful or an interesting possible next move for somebody who, you know, considers like gaylorism uh, a fun or an interesting or an invigorating part of their lives? Like, is it more of a sense of just, well, we'll keep going, but sort of wall ourselves off more? Is it uh, become slightly more diffuse and try to move on to to other uh, things of interest? Um, Is it just keep fighting the good fight and make her gay through the power of your imagination? Which might work one day. You never know. I think another thing that we haven't really discussed thus far is part of the appeal of the Gaylor fandom is the whole community aspect of it. So I think some people are just kind of enjoy being involved in that online community, um, whether they believe in the Gaylor relationship, the SwiftCon relationship, whatever specifically interests them about the possibility of Gaylor, they enjoy, you know, the people they've met there and how it feels to be a part of something like that. So I've seen some Gaylers, in fact, do not actually like Carly Kloss very much and are kind of like over that whole part of it. So I've seen, like, for example, the the Gaylor Update Twitter account, which is a semi-popular Gaylor Twitter account or X account. It posted something about Joe Alwyn recently, who is her ex from like two relationships ago now, but they were together for a number of years, there's, you know, a number of songs supposedly about him. And now some Gaylers are like, actually, we kind of like Joe Alwyn. Like, he's our new guy now because we don't like Travis Kelsey. That's kind of like too, like, obviously, like, hetero and mainstream. And Joe Alwyn's kind of like, he's pretty, like, kind of looks like a lesbian. So let's just like, maybe we can stand Joe Alwyn just because we feel like it and we're over Taylor and just just because it's a fun thing to do. There's some people who are just kind of doing it for the joy of doing it and aren't actually caring as much anymore about the, the conspiracy theory part of it all and just start having fun and enjoying being in that community, which is, you know, a big part of what fandom is. Well, that's fantastic. It frankly sounds like a bunch of people who would have been pretty useful code breakers during World War II. They have to turn their energies elsewhere. And this seems as good a use as any. Thank you so much for walking us through this and have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. There's a long and rich history of occasional tension between gay fans and gay icons. Judy Garland, perhaps more famously than anyone else, was known for her gay fans, and she herself had a somewhat complicated relationship with them. One of the last reviews of her final concert said, A disproportionate part of Garland's nightly clique seems to be homosexual. The boys in the tight trousers roll their eyes, tear at their hair, and practically levitate from their seats. Daniel Harris would later write in The Death of Camp on Garland that diva worship, issuing from, quote, the almost universal homosexual experience of ostracism and insecurity, which ultimately leads to the aestheticism of maladjustment, the gay man's exploitation of cinematic visions of Hollywood grandeur to elevate himself above his antagonistic surroundings. 
It's not just that Judy Garland suffered and that gay people like suffering, but that her delivery was itself often so over the top and mismatched to the on-screen stakes of normality. She was often visibly uncomfortable and fidgeting, even while she was playing paragons of Ohio normalcy and Girls Next Door. It sometimes seemed like she herself was in on the joke. One of her earliest musical hits begins with an invocation to Dear Mr. Gable, as she says, I guess I'm just another fan of yours, and so I thought I'd write and let you know. Taylor Swift is not just a diva. She positions herself as a workhorse, as a striver, as somebody who gets things done. Garland's early studio-sanctioned-slash-forced American ordinariness actually often seems to be Taylor Swift's goal. And so there's an interesting tension there as well between gay diva worship, plausible lesbian deniability, rock and roll celebrity and a desire for privacy that all seem to be at great odds with one another. Gay Taylor is dead. Long live Gay Taylor. If you're interested in hearing some additional non-Taylor Swift music about complicated relationships to gayness, I recommend Of Montreal's Tim, I Wish You Were Born a Girl, Weezer's Pink Triangle, Josie Cotton's classic Johnny Are You Queer, and Franz Ferdinand's Michael. Have a good week and see you next time. Lavery, this episode was produced by Palace Shaw and Alicia Montgomery as the Vice President of Audio.